Welcome back, HVAC On Air listeners. We are here again today for another episode of What's New with Regs with Jennifer Butch and Dr. Rajan Rajendran. Thank you for coming back to the show, guys. Thanks for having us, Lindsay. So, Thank you, Lindsay. So today, Jennifer, tell us what we're going to be talking about. Well, we're going to talk about the AIM Act today. And many of you might not be familiar with that, but that's why we've brought Rajan in to help us understand what is the AIM Act and what might be the potential impacts of the AIM Act. So Rajan, can you help us understand what the AIM Act is? I know at the highest level, like it's the phase down legislation for HFC refrigerants. So, but maybe you could give us a little more detail. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jennifer. The AIM Act stands for American Innovation and Manufacturing Act. It's called the AIM Act of 2019. Uh, obviously, as the year indicates, it was in 2019 when the bill was put together. And finally, it passed on uh, December 27, 2020, which is barely uh, a little over a month ago. And what it does is it creates a mechanism for phasing down the call regulated substances, and in this particular case, in our industry, we call them HFCs. So it gives power to the EPA to regulate HFCs and step them down from 2023, then 2023 to 2026, and so on, all the way down to 15% of the baseline in 2036. Now, what is the baseline? The baseline is the production and consumption of HSC going back to 2011 to 2013. So an average of that plus around 15% of R22 that was being consumed in 1989 plus a little bit something more is added to it. And that is what is called the baseline. And then from there, you know, in 2020 to 2023, we're now supposed to step down to 90% of the baseline. So it's a 10% decrease. And then there's another 30-point decrease after that. So it steps down every three to four years, all the way down to 15% in 2036, like I said. So it's an HSC phase-down enabler, and it also gives the EPA authority to control the amount of HSCs that can be leaked and emitted into the atmosphere, and so on and so forth. It is something that the industry has been wanting, has been working very, very closely with a lot of different stakeholders. And the reason why, Jennifer, it's called the American Innovation and Manufacturing Act is because it's not just the manufacturers of refrigerants, so many of them are U.S.-based, but it's also manufacturers of equipment, air conditioning, heating, and refrigeration equipment a significant amount of technology and innovation and things like that invested in this. If you remember some of the early publications and things that came out uh, about this AMAC, there was talk about how this will create 33,000 new jobs and continue to sustain about 138 to 139,000 jobs. You know, it also talks about increasing manufacturing by $12.5 billion dollars and directly, and then another 38 to 40 billion indirectly, and so on and so forth. So overall, it is good for the economy, it's good for the environment, and it's good for American business. 
we were watching this bill closely as it moved through the House and Senate. And so we were all pretty excited in December when it actually got some traction and was signed by the president. So can you explain just real quickly how this is different than ratification of Kigali? I know they are related because those phase down steps that you talked about are consistent between the two. But can you just help explain to us how they're different? Mm -hmm. The Kigali Amendment that was signed by all the parties in 2016, the Kigali Amendment is really an amendment to the Montreal Protocol. If you, if you recall, the Montreal Protocol goes back to 1987, and that had to do with phasing out CFCs and HCFCs. That's when HFCs came in as a substitute for CFCs and HCFCs. And then, of course, later on, we realized that these HFCs also had another dimension to them, which, by the way, the CFCs also did, and that is a global warming dimension. But there was a lot of increased focus on global warming, and so HFCs became important to be controlled. And um, even though uh, we didn't want it to be phased out, but we wanted the global warming potential CO2 equivalent to be reduced over a period of time. That's what the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol does. It phases down the production and use of HFCs over a period of time, all the way down to 2036 and beyond, and brings it down to this 15% that we just talked about. The Kigali Amendment is a treaty. It's part of a treaty, it's a treaty. And the AIM Act, or you know, when a country signs the treaty, which, by the way, the United States, we have not yet done that, and over 100 countries have already signed the Kigali Amendment. So when a country signs this Kigali Amendment, it doesn't take the force of law within the nation until a law is passed in order to, you know, to enact the treaty's provisions. So if you, if you think about it that way, um, we have actually done it backwards. We got the AIM Act out first, which basically implements the Kigali steps, but we are not doing it necessarily for the environment as a reason. We're doing it because it's good for American jobs and innovation and manufacturing. Nevertheless, it has the same effect that it does help the environment while it helps our country from a competitive point of view. So the AIM Act is law that has been passed in the United States, and therefore now we should expect regulations to come out from the EPA that spells out clearly how they're going to implement this, and that's what we're all waiting on. I know you brought up the subject of the Kigali Amendment. If any of you have been watching the news, you probably know that the new administration, President Biden, has asked the State Department to start putting all the paperwork together and things like that in order to submit the Kigali Amendment to the U.S. Senate for ratification. When that happens and when he signs the Kigali Amendment, we will also become a signatory to the Kigali Amendment. But in the meantime, we have the AMAC that we have to deal with. And that's what, by the way, like I said earlier, industry and all the stakeholders wanted it. And we believe it's a good thing to do. 
Thinking back to some of our webinars and our in-person presentations last year (laughs) before COVID hit, I mean, a big takeaway from this, the possibility of this HFC phase-down bill at the federal level was that a federal approach could minimize the complexity and patchwork of state-by-state regulations. Rajan, can you tell us a little bit about the sector-based rulemaking and how EPA might roll that out? And will that look similar to CARB with GWP limits, or will it look more similar to what we've seen under the SNAP regulations and policy framework where it's end use, like very specifically refrigerant by refrigerant uh, analysis? Yeah, probably the former, the first, more like how CARB came out and said in this application or this type of equipment, you shall not use anything more than X, Y, or Z, GWP refrigerant. That's probably what they will end up doing, we think. Now, the application by application and permitting a refrigerant or not permitting a refrigerant, that was what, as you pointed out, Jennifer, that is what they used to do under the SNAP 2021. That was the last one where they actually eliminated some of the refrigerants. And we've talked about it, as you said, we've talked about this in so many webinars about all the litigation and so on and so forth. So it's pointless to rehash all that. But the SNAP 2021 didn't just go away. The state started adopting it. And I think you have discussed this in prior E360 webinars, how each state has its own date for implementing SNAP 20 and 21. So when you start looking at that uh, hodgepodge of dates, it, it, it looks like it's going to be impossible for a manufacturer or a wholesaler or a distributor or, or even a contractor to keep track of which state you're working in and what, you, what is allowed and what is not allowed and so on and so forth. That is why a federal approach is so much better for us because it gives us some clarity as to what the equipment will be and what is the maximum GWP allowed will be and what that one single date will be. Perfect. And so I know before when we were talking about moving towards the lower GWP for California specifically with CARB taking the lead on that regulation, we have some equipment transitions coming with many of these lower GWP or global warming potential refrigerants also having some degree of flammability. And there's codes and standards development work that's been done. There's more that's in process, some that we're working on actively. And so I think for our industry, you know, we continue to push forward, but now instead of doing it for one or two or a handful of states, it's really going to be for a federal transition. And so from a priority standpoint, it just helps amplify the <laughs> the need for, for these things to be in place. You know, the AMAC, as you said, phases down the quote-unquote CO2 equivalent in terms of GWP, what the chemical manufacturers will be permitted to produce. They would phase down to 15% of the baseline. Well, what that means is if you want to keep the same amount of refrigerant that you have always been producing, you now have to produce lower and lower global warming potential gases in order to meet that phase-down schedule. And as you said, a lot of these lower global warming potential gases are either mildly flammable, A2L, or highly flammable like A3. 
there are, of course, some A1 options like CO2 and so on, but they don't always work and are not always used in every single application. And when I say that, I'm not just talking refrigeration, I'm talking air conditioning and heat pump applications as well. So given that, these standards that you mentioned, those are the UL safety standards and the ASHRAE application safety standards, which is ASHRAE 15, they all are extremely important. You know, those standards are not static. They will keep improving them as, as time goes on. And I believe the third edition of UL standard that is relevant to us, which is 60335-2-40. I hate it when I can rattle off a line of <laughs> numbers like that. <laughs> that probably means I'm spending, and I know you can too, you, you and I are spending way too much time on this. But anyway, um, that standard is published and it's final, but the next edition is being worked on. And I know you're on that committee, Jennifer, along with Greg. Then there's, of course, the ASHRAE 15 and 15.2, which is for residential and commercial AC is done. But the corresponding standards for commercial refrigeration, both the UL standard as well as the ASHRAE 15 to be updated for commercial draft, they're not complete yet, and they're still in the process of being done. However, the deadlines <laughs> to start phasing down are fast upon us. So, yeah, the industry is well aware of it, and all the different stakeholders, people from all the different interested parties are all part of this effort to try and get all these tenants updated, but we got to get them done. Yep. And you mentioned that, you know, to keep producing the same quantity of refrigerant that we're producing today, we need to move to lower GWP or lower global warming potential refrigerants under this framework. But this act was clear to carve out that it would not strand equipment or it would not prevent servicing equipment that's already in the field. I do, however, anticipate that as time goes on, those higher global warming potential refrigerants would increase in cost because it is going to take more of these credits to produce those fluids. Is that consistent with your understanding? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. First of all, what you said is important, which is this act, AIM Act of 2019, as well as whatever the EPA does by way of regulation, they will not abandon any existing equipment, meaning it will not be illegal to service any of air conditioning or refrigeration equipment that we have in the country. So if you own one of those, and I do, you can uh, rest easy that you don't have to hurry up and do anything, okay? Now, your point is correct, that with time, as uh, some of these higher global warming gases, they, they are likely to get more expensive. But that is always the case with any pre-market system where supply and demand plays a role. The other thing that you mentioned was about, I thought I thought you were going to go there, which has to do with uh, one of the things that the AIM Act is doing, if done, is to give the EPA authority to regulate leaks and venting and such of HFPs. So yes, we should expect that the EPA will enact certain regulations that will make it not uh, proper to vent HFCs or uh, leak them. And if you leak them, you'll have to fix the leak and so on and so forth. Everything that you do for CFCs and HFCs, Jennifer, you'll have to start doing for HFCs as well. 
kind of restoring yeah. what we lost under Section 608 recently. That's you can correct. envision that that comes back. Yeah, well, I covered a lot of ground, didn't we? <laughs> I know. I'm. I'm feel like we're in a much better understanding of what this is, and hopefully our audience does too, and our listeners. And as always, we're always grateful to have you on this show and help us understand better what this complex regulation is. The regulation that rolled out as part of that larger package was what over five thousand pages, Rajan. <laughs> Quite complex. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, the whole thing was about five thousand five hundred or something odd pages. But I like how you know the number. Yeah, <laughs> who's counting? Yeah, who, who looked at that? I, I I think our section was not that long. Our section was only uh, I don't remember what it was, but was it a couple of hundred pages? <laughs> something uh, like just a few hundred. Uh, well, yes, we definitely appreciate having both of you on this show as experts. You know, listeners, both Rajma and Jennifer mentioned a few other things earlier in this episode about the Kigali Amendment, SNAP rules, state by state. We've got some previous episodes that Rajma and Jennifer have done, kind of breaking those down even further. So if those interest you, go back and check them out. Jennifer has also done some work with Don Gillis on those as well. So if you're looking for what that means for you when you're out in the industry servicing those systems, there's some more information there. As always, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Lindsay. Thank you, Lindsay. Thanks, Jennifer. And with that, listeners, you can always find us at ac-heatingconnect.com and follow us at Copeland on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thanks so much. 